Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is Sashia Liriano. Sashia is a Dominican-American chef who is a chef de cuisine at Friday, Saturday, Sunday, currently the number two restaurant in the city, according to Philly Magazine. She was born and raised in Bronx and attended the Art Institute in Philadelphia for culinary management. Over the past decade, she's worked at 19 different kitchens, including a number of Philly's most prominent restaurants, including Barbuzo's, Little Nana's, and Fork. Sashia comes with a wealth of knowledge around all things food, resiliency, and restaurant management. In this week's episode, Sashia tells some eye-opening stories from her culinary journey in Philadelphia, which truly shine a light on her resilience. She also shares about her Dominican-American upbringing and how those influences inform the food that she creates today. She goes on to explain the power that mentorship has had on her life, as well as her creative process as a chef. Whether it's cooking, leading, or listening, Sashia leads with integrity and a human-first approach. It's clear why she's such a respected and beloved member of the Philadelphia food scene. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Discover More with us and Sashia Liriano. Thank you. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are so excited for today's episode because Ada and myself were both huge foodies and I personally indulge in a lot of food documentaries and I think Chef is such a unique and different vocation from a lot of the professionals in the United States, especially under the current capitalistic lens. So you obviously have a lot of culture and you're a Latina background and you're from Bronx. But when I view your stories, holistically speaking, you spent 13 years in Philadelphia, and which I reckon you've been calling Philadelphia home for a while, right? So tell us about your journey in Philadelphia that made you the amazing chef that you are in today's. I feel like my experiences here since 2008 have definitely been, there have been a lot of highs and lows. I am kind of like hesitant to call Philadelphia home just because I love New York so much and that's where my family is. But I think it may be like mostly because, you know, home is where the heart is and my heart is in New York. I've enjoyed working in Philadelphia. I feel like it's been a big difference is like coming into adulthood, coming into a place that's a li- where you're able to slow down as opposed to New York, where it's just like you're constantly on the go. But it's definitely been quite a journey. You meet different types of people. I hear you. I think the one thing that really stood out is 19 different kitchens, which I imagine loops in with the many different people, right? Being able to see whether it's different customers, different coworkers, different managers, I think is very apparent just from that wide ranging experience. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit of how you were able to navigate such different waters. Like I can only assume that working at two different restaurants might have entirely different work cultures, restaurant cultures, What's that been like navigating back and forth between such a wide range of restaurants and, you know, work environments? Well, I definitely would say that I I feel like every single place that I've stepped into has kind of been different. I learned different things from everywhere. Like in the beginning of my, like working in restaurants, um, I learned a lot about the environment and like how different it is from because my first job was working at a bakery where it's just kind of like you know it's the office so everybody's kind of like you know everybody minds their business it's very relaxed you just get your work done and you go home right and then working in a kitchen like it was just crazy for me to like step into a kitchen and like my chef is like hey you want to go to the back and smoke some weed (laughs) i'm like 
mm, I've never smoked weed before, so no, I'm not going to do that. And also, you're scratching your balls on the line, and I'm just going to sit here and, like, be okay with that because, you know, I'm young and I can't be like, you're gross, you know? So it's definitely kind of like I learned how to just – I was very silent. I didn't ever really speak up for myself until, you know, I felt like things got really bad. Um, and then I also saw how male dominated like kitchens were. And that was like also another wake up call with all the bullshit I had to deal with from people who just were like on a power trip and who happened to be men who were also gross. So one of my first experiences, and this is pretty like rated R. So I hope no, I don't know, parents just be careful. Don't let your kids listen in. But like one time I was working at a, at a restaurant and I'm not going to say where, but I was working at this restaurant. I was working the Garmage station to begin with. Well, first I started off as prep. Then I moved up to Garmage, which was like salads, fried stuff. And then I was like, I want more responsibility. So they put me on a, um, like they had a little salad bar and like they would have like an antipasti plate. So I was like, I want to do that. Give me more responsibility. So I took on those two things. And then I also wanted to learn how to make pizzas. So I would like, if we weren't slow enough, I would try to hop around and learn all the things. And eventually, like, it came to a point where we got too busy and I took on too much and I was overwhelmed. And one time I left zucchinis behind the line on a tray and my chef de cuisine comes up to me and he thought it was really funny to in front of all the cooks be like hey are you saving this for later so you can take it home and fuck yourself literally in front of like a staff full of men i was the only woman working in that kitchen the way that i felt uncomfortable like i was just like i didn't even know what to say and i was just like okay and it kind of trickled down because you would see like the way the culture was like because then later on the guy who was teaching me how to make pizzas constantly talking about my ass or like walking behind me but accidentally touching you and it's kind of like if you speak to a lot of women in the industry I'm sure they'd have the same experiences but I walked out one day and uh the chef who I thought would be more like you know four women but she sat me down she's like hey what's going on and I was like oh well this and this is, has been happening and she was like well you need to toughen up buttercup rather than like talking to these guys about, hey, this is kind of gross. Like, don't treat women like this or just don't talk to each other like this. That was like one of the first things that I remember experiencing. And it was like a little bit traumatic to me because it was like, you know, my mom always taught me to stand up for myself. Like, don't let anybody be inappropriate with you. And, you know, as a woman, your parents warn you about people like that. And, you know, they know that people are going to try you. After that, I learned to have my guard up. It was like something that taught me like, Take yourself seriously because if you want to make it to a better place, like you're going to have to set your boundaries with people. But I definitely had other experiences where like another chef who came in like slapped my ass and I had to like grab his hand and like threaten to cut it off because I, I was just like upset. Like, don't touch me. You know what I mean? I haven't like experienced that since then and I think it's because people just know like I'm not gonna sit there and and take it but in the beginning of my career it was definitely something that was a little bit difficult and I also worked with a chef who ended up getting arrested well he's in jail now but um in Blackbird and Westside Gravy um Alex Capasso I worked with him for a little bit I ended up quitting because he was gross but he went to jail for having child pornography and I worked with him, <laughs> which is nuts. That was like one of the first places I experienced like being made fun of for believing in God. I was working there for free, first of all. And I said, you know, I would like Sundays off because, you know, I go to go to church with my, now my ex-boyfriend, but at the time my boyfriend, I went to church with his family and he was like, oh, well, you're not going to have time for God when you work in this industry. So figure it out. Now it makes sense that he was like such a scumbag, you know, uh, but those have been some of my experiences in the beginning of my career. Yeah. Thank you for being so open and vulnerable since the first 10 minutes of this interview. 
and we will definitely I mean, do it. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I can see that Bronx all over you and I respect that and it's awesome because we'll definitely put down some trigger warning in the beginning for some parental advice for sure. So what I hear from your story is the theme of conformity. And as a third culture child myself and as a DR descendant like yourself, a lot of these immigrants come to America to pursue further opportunities and pursue this so-called American dream. The first thing we hear is, oh, America is a great place because it's a melting pot. And I've talked about this recently on this show that if you know how melting pot works, which you do because you're the chef de cuisine, when you mix a bunch of ingredients, right, a lot of the ingredients get mixed into and gets override by the main ingredients in the United States the main ingredients oftentimes the whiteness your experience in your earlier days in kitchens working across 19 uh, kitchens and restaurants is what is the dominant flavor what is the dominant ingredient in the kitchens you worked at it's men it's a patriarchy it's very very like you gloss over so many things and obviously you're being uh, funny about it and you're reflecting from an introspective and from a hindsight view but I can't even imagine how difficult it was at the time, how that the sexual harassment, the unwanted attention, um, these like gross men touching you without your consent, these are like legitimate crimes. Like these are actual crimes, right? But what do you think that level of resiliency came from? Because if I were in your shoes, a lot of these young women who step into their kitchen for the first time to pursue their aspirations to become a chef, but there's a lot of hierarchy in kitchen, right? And I'm sure you know this, it's not an easy life. It's a very difficult life, and it's one of the most overworked and burnt-out industries with the highest mental health challenges, including a medical field like doctors or lawyers and chefs, restaurants. So what do you think resilience came from? Because in those scenarios, you could have done two things. You could have quit, reevaluate, is this something I want to dedicate the next 20 years to? Or I'm going to persevere through, and would love to talk about your mindset on what gave you that drive since the get-go. Well... Honestly, I know this is going to sound so weird, but I've wanted to cook since I could remember. Like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, chef. <laughs> like, even as a kid. So um, a lot of my upbringing, like with my family, we didn't eat out. We didn't eat McDonald's. We didn't eat any fast food. My mom always cooked. And being that both of my parents and me being the oldest, being that both of my parents had to work to provide and um, obviously like put us three girls through private school, you know, with jobs that don't pay very well. I watched a lot of the sacrifices that my parents made. And for me, that's what has always drived me because I've always had the bigger vision. And my parents raised me to be tough, you know? And like, I would always stick up for my sisters. Even as a kid, you know, I would get suspended from school all the time because I just never took any shit. And my parents just didn't raise me to give up. My parents, you know, a lot of parents, I feel like they try to hide all the things that they're going through from their kids and stuff like that. Like, you you know, all the sacrifices. And like, for me, it was watching my parents, my mom selling jewelry that belonged to my grandfather that was very near and dear to her, um, watching my parents sell their wedding rings. Like, I know this is a lot, but this is like, from my perspective, this is what I saw. I always told myself, I'm not gonna let somebody else uh, fuck with my drive. You know what I mean? Because my parents sacrificed so much, so why can't I toughen up and sacrifice what I need to in order, like, for the bigger picture of things? and. You just have to like, not toughen up because that's insensitive, but you just have to figure out, put things in perspective and figure out what you really care about, what's the bigger picture and set boundaries like, and let people know like, this is what I will not tolerate. And if you don't like it, you know, and you have to be rational about it. Cause you can't be like, oh, I don't like the way you spoke to me because people are always gonna bitch or they're going to say something disrespectful that you don't like because we're humans you know we say our thoughts like what we're thinking we don't have a filter all the time so I can deal with a chef yelling at me and like saying things that may hurt my feelings like oh don't be a shoemaker you know or this is under season throw it out or like you did this wrong throw it out I could deal with that I can't deal with any other abuse that is just like gonna fuck up my mind you know and like set me up to be this person who accepts mistreatment from others so my drive really comes from my parents 
I watch them sacrifice things and I always say to myself, why can't I do it? I mean, eventually I'd like to own a restaurant. So that's always been my, my vision from the beginning. That's really what drives me. Definitely. I'm hearing a lot of both clarity and vision, kind of clarity internally as to what experiences have shaped who you are and how that informs the way that you communicate your boundaries, right? I don't think you'd be able to communicate your boundaries externally if you didn't know what your boundaries were internally, which I think is just an interesting way of seeing it. Like you need to have clarity and able to speak that out into the externally facing world. And then similarly with the vision, kind of having that overall goal of having a restaurant one day, that point to continue to drive towards an overall purpose, right? Being able to endure hardships to get to that overall vision, I think is what really kind of comes up on my end there, both the clarity and the vision elements of that. So with that being said, I kind of wanted to rewind a little bit to what you mentioned around you've always known you wanted to cook. You've always known you wanted to be a chef. Um, You mentioned cooking growing up has informed that passion, but really what are some of the cooking philosophies that you took from that upbringing? Is it bringing in your Dominican heritage into some of the flavors you bring or what about your experience in the Bronx and like always knowing you wanted to cook? How does that inform the way that you're a chef now? I would say that everything that I do in the kitchen somehow always reminds me of my journey. It's definitely been like, okay, so I used to cook rice, beans, and steak. We used to boil our steak. And maybe that's not the best way to cook the steak, but the flavor was always right to me. So I definitely feel like cooking growing up and seeing how the food brought my family together has been something that has made me a little bit better as a chef. Um, because I can always like make a dish and think about things my mom used to cook for me or things that I always watched that my mom loved that as a kid, maybe you didn't like so much. Um, For example, one great example, and this dish was on Food & Wine magazine as the most soul-rattling pasta of like, I think 2019. Not for Philadelphia, but just uh, in general, like uh, it's a blood sausage pasta which is traditionally called morcilla it's something I was always like oh mom you're eating blood sausage and you know all this stuff and I like to mix like my culture with things that I've learned so I've worked at Italian restaurants I didn't grow up eating pasta so I take my passion and combine it with experience um, and that's how I'm able to create dishes that I really really love and that are near and dear to my heart and The fact that that was even on Food & Wine magazine like made me very emotional because it was like literally a reflection of my mother who's, like I said in the past, has sacrificed so much for me. So for me to be able to do something that came out of that love and like have people acknowledge it and also enjoy it as much as I did, like was one of the most satisfying, like gratifying things that I've experienced. So I I feel like that's a perfect example as to how experience and the way I was brought up has played out um, for me as a chef. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful story. Like I said, the reason why I said earlier why chef as an industry and chef as a vocation is so different and unique because there's not a recipe for success. There's no such thing as safe route. And I know a lot of chefs are misfits, but they find their salvation through cooking. Like, for example, some chefs become great chefs through culinary school or some chefs become great chefs through just cooking and through learning on the spot. And I share that because you just talked about this blood sausage pasta dish that you were so frowned upon growing up and you didn't think would relate to the masses of audiences. It became ranked as one of the most popular dish in 2019. And it says that every chef and every dish has his own criteria and their own path. And of course, if you look at Michelin star grade, there's certain sets of criteria they get measured upon, but I'm, I'm a big foodie, so I know a lot about documentaries, and I know there was a first ramen Michelin-graded restaurant in LA, right? It was the first one that became a noodle Michelin-grade. Until that happens, nobody believes that a ramen shop could receive a Michelin-grade star, but they did. Likewise, for your story, you never thought this blood sausage dish would resonate with people, but it did. And it talks about how unique and each individual path should be as a chef. 
And I think that speaks to your upbringing with combining the modern ingredients with the traditional flavors of your cultural upbringings. I think you may see where I'm going with this is I'm interested in some of your cooking stuff. And Aiden and myself were brainstorming last time for this interview. And I told him, I view chefs, in this case, you as an alchemist. I think you command, you have to command ingredients like alchemy, right? Of course, you're not turning uh, paper into gold, but, but similarly, you're turning these seemingly irrelevant individual ingredients that are raw and flavorless on their own. Of course, there's a lot of amazing ingredients that shine through, but by themselves, they're cool, but they're just ingredients. But through alchemy, you're able to mold them into this amazing new world, amazing new flavor, amazing new aesthetics that people love. And like I talked about, food is storytelling to me. It tells your culture, it tells your upbringings, it tells you who you are. So um, what are some of the things you have experimenting today? Because we like to go back and forth, you know, so uh, zoom back into the present days as a chef de cuisine at Friday, Saturday, Sunday, currently the number two restaurants in Philadelphia, the city of fine dining. What are some of the recipes or ingredients or creativities you've been playing around uh, in the last couple of years or this year? Well, I'm very obsessed with flavor. Um, I think before we do anything, well, Chad and I and pretty much anyone who works at Friday, Saturday, Sunday knows that flavor comes first. So I've definitely studied a lot, like this book called Umami, which um, is a Japanese word for like synergy with ingredients and finding balance of sweet, sour, uh, salty, but it's a five senses. I look for balance and synergy with everything that I do. And um, I'm very big on aroma and freshness. So we started using hay a while ago uh, in this caramelized shrimp fume, which is like a fish broth. And I made a hay butter. So it was like a rich, like floral butter. It's not straw hay. It's like different kind of hay. And I wish I could tell you the name of it, but it's my day off, so my brain <laughs> a little bit turned off. Uh, I'm very into aroma these days and like, you know, that freshness, like when you eat that, it's like you drink a very hearty soup, but then you have, it's kind of like you had a cup of Earl Grey tea with your fish. It's kind of just like, that's just what it reminds me of. A lot of my cooking is based on memory and like things that make me feel good and how I want to make make those two experiences of, oh, I love this caramelized shrimp flavor, but it's so strong that you need something to kind of be like, oh, it's a soft flavor. I like balance and I like triggering those parts of your brain where it's just like you also, you know, like every most, the average person has had like Earl Grey tea and has experienced like something that like a flavor that may be floral and then knows what a strong like soup broth or like a tamarind broth tastes like. So I like to bring those two together. Um, And I really, honestly, I'm just always working on flavor and keeping things traditional and just continuing to learn. I would say that that's what I'm always working on. But one of the dishes, going back to the hay butter, one of the dishes that I'm working on is bay leaf, vanilla bean, and uh, cinnamon on fish, which I know sounds a little odd, but it works. It kind of gives like, I'm trying to substitute the um, hay butter situation with vanilla bean, because if you think about, I'm not sure if you had hay before, but it's kind of like going back to the Earl Grape of vanilla bean, you know, like that aroma and the Earl Grey tea, they're kind of similar. So I'm trying to figure out a way to make those flavors work together. And then we worry about presentation, technique. You know, we already know. You always have the technique on the back pocket. That, that would be one thing I'm working on right now. This sounds like such a fascinating recipe. And what comes up for me is just the creative process behind all of it, right? Like where does the not just idea of combining these ingredients, but really putting them out into like actual experimentation. I imagine there's a lot of mental rehearsal as well as physical trial and error. So I was really curious whether it's this recipe specifically with the basil leaf, vanilla and cinnamon, or even like recipes you've created in the past of like what the chef's creative process is. Is it kind of internal thinking about what different things might blend together? Is it like this recipe worked really well? What's something else? 
Um, and it's probably individual, but what is your creative process look like? First of all, the food that we do at Friday, Saturday, Sunday, sometimes we will work on a dish for a couple months after doing all this stuff that is just not good enough. Um, a lot of it is having integrity and being like, you know what? I'm not feeling this that much. I'm not going to put it out there because if I don't enjoy it and you know, you're your biggest, you judge yourself the most, right? But you should expect that from other people. So if you're putting out something that you're not proud of, that you can't walk into a room or you can't walk up to the table and say, how is this? And not be worried about, oh, I didn't really like it. I mean, you're going to have people who don't love everything that you do, which is fine. But if you're not confident in what you're putting out, then what's the point? So it's kind of like you decide, you know, I worked on this dish for three months. It's still not good enough. Let's put it on the back burner. Let's work on something else or let's leave what's good, good, rather than just for the sake of seasonality, for the sake of, you know, just having new things or even having specials. Like that's really not how I think and it's not how Chad thinks. We really want to put things out that we are always going to be proud of. We don't look at it and feel like, you know, like, you know, when you do something and you know, you half-assed it, but you put it out, you feel, you pretend to feel good about it. But in reality, deep down in your heart, maybe no one else knows it, but you, you know, it's not that good. That's definitely part of the creative process is having integrity is number one. I was so obsessed with that word that I got it tattooed on my body, which maybe that wasn't the best move. I was drunk when I did it, but I was also very sad. Uh, so <laughs> I ended up getting that tattooed and I really do try to live by it because I mean, at that point, I still feel strongly about that word, but it's something that means so much to me because it's like everything that I do is for a purpose. It's not, it's not even just for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And kind of introduced a whole nother set of questions around, you know, you kind of alluded to what integrity means within the kitchen, but really outside of the kitchen, more into the personal, more holistic lens. You mentioned that you have a larger purpose for the things that you do, um, have values behind what kind of actions you're taking, but really what does integrity mean and why did you get this tattoo in the non-chef related elements of your life? Well, okay, this is really weird, but I was in a relationship for six and a half years, but I was always so, people would call me a, a workaholic so much. Both me and this person were very young when we were together, but we ended up being in a relationship for six and a half years and kudos to him for putting up with, you know, someone who was never around. I mean, he figured his shit out while, you know, I was working, he still had fun, but I felt like I always knew that something was wrong and I chose to ignore it and just be like, ah, I'm going to keep my head down and just do my work. There's no way in hell that this person is going to like do something to hurt me. Right. Cause you've been with somebody for so long. You think that, that everything is going to be okay. But that was definitely one of the getting to a very personal state. Cause that was like, something that definitely changed the way that I think that relationship definitely shaped me. And it was heartbreaking for me uh, losing that relationship. But working at certain restaurants while I was in a relationship was definitely difficult. And it made me just like figure out, okay, you know, you can't give everything your focus. Like you kind of, sometimes you have to pick and choose what's more important to you. And for me, it's always been my career and trying to get you know, kind of having that tunnel vision, like I need to get where I'm going and everything else is just background noise. Yeah. Being a chef is definitely not the path of least resistance. Let me tell you that. And what is a more effective way to honor what's so important to you? Because it's very evident that integrity is a very important pillar in your life than through the permanence of tattooing on your body. So in that sense, you'll never forget that. But I do think integrity matters a lot. Jokes aside. And I want to zoom in into this name that popped up at least four times during our conversations, Chad, right? And we know the Chad you're referring to is Chad Williams, and he's a very prolific chef in the Philadelphia region and the nationwide. He was known as and quoted as one of the most uh, prominent and rising stars back in 2019. And I could tell the type of reverence and adorations that you have for this person, Chad. 
and would love to ask you more about him and what he means to you and just tell about your relationship on how he was able to contribute to this amazing chef that you have become in today. Wow. Chad, okay, do you guys have like three more hours? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But like Chad, Chad and Hannah, I want to say that not only Chad, but Hannah, uh, his wife, are some of the most beautiful people that I've ever met. Deep down in my heart, I believe that. And although, you know, sometimes like we're very passionate and maybe we have misunderstandings, but even during the most difficult times, I never come home feeling like, oh crap, or I hate them. I never feel that. Even like if we have arguments or something like that, or disagreements, or I'm annoyed at work because I've been working on a dish and Chad's like, it's not good enough. Let's start over or something. It's always okay. Um, and I say that because, you know, when someone's a genuine person, when someone genuinely cares about you, after that relationship that ended from six and a half years, I was working with Chad um, when it was kind of like on the cusp of ending. And he was just like there for me. Like, it was like, oh, okay, are you done crying? Let's get back to work. And I've worked at places that have been like that. They're just like, they don't care. Like person who told me to toughen up after I was being sexually harassed, you know? It's crazy from going to that, to somebody who sees that you're not well and literally will go out of their way to do research, to find you mental health help, you know, somebody who invests in you, not only as like a chef, but as a fucking human being, you know? Even when I wasn't working for him, you know, like he he has gone out of his way to find me someone to go talk to, to always listen, all of my sentiments basically, like just whatever I feel like. I Sometimes I feel bad for him because I feel like he has to sit there and listen to me ramble on for a while about nonsense. Uh, sometimes it's things that don't even matter, but him and Hannah are, are just stand-up people. And he's also very knowledgeable. Like there is nothing, like he's made me be a more confident person because he's like, you know, I don't know if this is gonna sound chauvinistic or anything like that, but he says, you know, cook like your dick is big, you know? <laughs> like just put your dick out on the table, you know? Like be confident, if you know you're good, put it out there and just say, like, this is me. And like, be confident in what you do. And when somebody gives you that, like somebody who you know is excellent, like when they validate you that way, put the work into you, then you feel confident enough to not only be a better version of yourself, but help other people do that. And I feel like it's a, it's a cycle. Like with the cooks at our job, it's such a great work environment because we have people who have gone off and done their own thing. And, you know, I think a lot of leadership should be not only just, you know, making money or making a name for yourself, but helping other people, like giving people that opportunity for growth. I see it a lot. Like we have one girl, um, Antia Rodriguez. She started her own uh, hot sauce line. And this started off, you know, the talent's always been there. You know, she's super talented. Uh, but this started off as a staff meal thing. We would have uh, leftover chicken wings from our chickens that we would butcher. We were like, India, make this uh, hot sauce for a chicken, like cook these chickens or whatever. And she started making hot sauces and it was like literally the best hot sauce I've ever had in my life. And not just because I love this girl to death, but it's freaking good. You know, you give people that confidence to just do something on their own and like feel good enough about about what they're doing, then it just trickles down. Now she's gonna be a person in a couple of years who's giving people guidance, giving people that confidence to, to be better. And I feel like that's what Chad does. You know, like not only is he great at cooking, but he's just like a generally good human being, very generous as well. Him and his wife are, I could say all the things about them. Like they're just so amazing. Yeah, like giving people the confidence that they need to be able to go on their own and feel good enough. You know, feel like, oh, I'm good enough. Like there's no doubt about that. We always challenge everyone. Like we don't let you just be like, oh yeah, this is good. No, if, it, if something sucks, we're gonna be like, hey, no, you gotta work on this recipe. You gotta fix it. You gotta have a tough skin to be able to to take somebody telling you, oh, what you've done for six months isn't good enough. And I feel like that's kind of like, you know, you build that relationship with people where you know that this person who's given me critique respects me as a person. 
that you don't feel so bad about it. You know, you know that they want the best for you. And I, that's, that's what Chad does. And I love that. And it almost, as you pointed out, becomes a cycle, right? Like you kind of alluded to him, not only being a mentor, being a chef, but kind of a human first. And that human first element trickles into the way that you lead and then pass that on to the people below you. Like it becomes a self-reinforcing kind of process of just leading with the heart first or the human element first. I'm glad that you brought up the leadership element of it because we're kind of using Chad's experience as the micro, but expanding that out to the macro of leadership specifically within a kitchen, uh, I assume that that and some of your previous experiences are a bit in the contrary or definitely contrast similarly. So how have you found that leadership style just in contrast to a lot of the restaurants? Like how do you see restaurant culture being able to shift if others are able to embody and practice this human first, we're a team, we're a family kind of environment. You know, you mentioned you wanted to have a restaurant of your own one day. How has this leadership style informed the way that you practice as a chef and as a leader? Yeah, it's just like basically the same. I wouldn't tweak anything about the way that he does things and the way that I would want to run things. Um, if I if I were to run a restaurant and I had 15 employees and I could make them feel they can be future leaders and this is the way to lead, this is the way to come to work and not feel like, oh, I wish I didn't come to work today or I'm so tired or you look over all those other things. And I feel like when you when you create that environment for people, like it's just it's just so much better. Like I've worked I've worked at kitchens where I had to argue about missing hours on my paycheck you know i had to be like oh wow i'm only making eight dollars and 14 cents an hour and i'm a higher paid line cook so i'm not gonna complain like you don't come into work being like oh i can't eat. i don't even know how i'm gonna get home tonight because i live in jersey and i worked in very prominent kitchens that have been like that and going from feeling like that mentally and being worried about how you're gonna get home and how you're going to eat or you know what's going to happen to your rent are you going to get evicted things like that even after working 80 hour a week like there's no way that you want to feel that way so you definitely like I, I feel like sometimes you have to go through the tough shit and then reflect on it and be like okay this is what I don't want this is what I will never want anyone else to experience you know just going back to just being a human you shouldn't do things to others that you wouldn't want done to you. So if I ever had a restaurant, um, I wouldn't wouldn't want somebody to be like worried about their paycheck or they have to go count their hours from the week or check if they've been clocked out, which one time I was working, my chef wasn't there and I asked the accountant for my hours. He printed them out and I was being clocked out throughout the day so they could skim my paycheck which was a crazy headache. And this restaurant is so well known and it's crazy that they do that. And nobody has spoken up about it, which is wild. Like within the industry, people know the reputation that these people have, but um, it's crazy that that you even have to go through that after working 80 hours a week, missing time with your family, your friends, losing out on relationships. And then you have to also argue about your paycheck. It's just crazy. Like that's why I feel like it's, it's important to experience, have those good experiences so you know what what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, that's awesome. I think a couple of things, there's a lot to unpack there. You talked about sometimes you just have to experience the tough shit, right? And then an analogy came to my mind or a metaphor that, of course, you're a chef, so I'm using a lot of food puns today uh, intentionally. So, But the way I view stress tests is like stress tests are very important because... There is no diamonds without the high heat, literally, right? You have to heat the coals in high pressure to turn into diamonds. Similarly speaking, to create an amazing dish, you have to throw ingredients in the fire, quite literally so. But the flavor of the outcome of the dish depends on the freshness of the ingredients. And I'm metaphorically talking about the freshness of the ingredients compared to the human's mental health or how you're feeling that day. If you as a line cook, or as a server, or as a team member in the kitchen or the restaurants, if you're not the fresh ingredient that you can be, the outcome is gonna be very limited. 
right? Exactly. And you sort of gloss over this earlier where you fell back for Chad because you would boggle him down with nonsense and the things don't matter. I do want to push you on that because I do, as a mental health advocate and as a future since you be mental health professional in the industry, I don't think there's such thing as nonsense because what happens is like your inner realities shape your outer realities, right? There's a direct correlation or even causation in that matter. And if you don't treat these seemingly trivial stuff or these tiny things that you consider as, oh, trivialities or these tiny things that are nonsense, if you keep swiping them under the rug, they're going to add up. And I want to share a quote by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. I'm currently reading a book called uh, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. And in the book, he quotes, life is what repeats and it is worth getting what repeats right. So if you think about what life is, life isn't always comprised of these major life cornerstones or milestones or big events. Life is comprised of the little things. It's a little argument that with, you, with your spouse. It's a little arguments and bickering you have with your friends. It's a little arguments and disputes with your families. If you don't address that, and most people don't because it's uncomfortable to, right? But you have the personality because you felt the importance of boundaries. You knew the importance of taking care of the minor things in order to be fresh, to take care of the bigger things in life. So I, I think it talks about the leadership that Chad has. It talks about the type of mentor he does. He recognized the importance of getting the little things repeated, getting those repeated things right. That's why I'm sure he attended to your needs. And obviously this show isn't about Chad. This show is about you. But I could just hear and sense the, the gravity and the magnitude of Chad in your life which informed the leader that you are as a chef de cuisine. So since we are talking on the mentorship topic, I want to stay on this for a little bit longer and zoom back into your upbringing. So I'm curious to ask, because you told us offline that your parents were on the cusp of middle class in Dominican Republic, but they came to the United States to pursue further opportunities or to pursue so-called American dream. And like we talked about, chef is not the path of least resistance, nor the most profitable or successful routes when people look at it from the outside world, right? But objectively speaking, sure, there's a lot of successful chefs like Roy Choi, Dave Chang, you know, Momofuku. Sure, celebrity chefs exist, Gordon Ramsay exists, but it's very difficult. So how did your parents or your mom uh, view your option uh, when you told them, mom, I want to pursue my lifelong dream of becoming a chef in America that they came over to pursue the so-called American dream? Well... I'm sure you know what I'm about to say, because you know how minority parents are. My mom is still telling me, Sash, do you want to go back to school? Do you want to do something else? I'm like, no, mom. And then she's like, okay, well, you can work in a hotel. Like, also, no, I'm not doing that. Um, I don't want to make steak, mashed potatoes, and asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm very sorry. Not that that's what all hotel chefs do, but you have to, in a sense, become complacent and just be like, okay, this is what people want. So this is what I'm giving them. You don't tell people how to eat. Right. And I feel like that's something that we're able to do at Friday, Saturday, Sundays, tell people what we want them to eat, how we want them to eat it. But, um, my mom definitely wants me to still figure my shit out. I've, I keep telling her I have it all figured out. I'm happy. Like even when I come home, like last night I came home, my whole body just hurt. Like, I'm like, okay, I'll get over it. I'll feel good next week. But no, it's definitely been challenging being in this industry and then trying to have relationships with your family. Um, I would definitely say that it's kind of deteriorated a little bit, especially like with one of my sisters. Like she's, I love her to death, but she feels like I've never been there for my family because I've been absent for 13 years. I graduated high school, came here and, you know, decided to stay here. I feel very heartbroken that that happens but i get that people grow apart and that's been some of my some of my battle with mental health has been like me feeling alone most of the time because you come home you don't have a relationship you you can't go run to your mom when you feel sick she can't make you soup you know she can't do all these things that moms do you know when you have your mom close by you get like treated like you're a baby all the time but i my relationship with my mom is very good Besides her wanting me to just completely change what I do, she still thinks I chop vegetables <laughs> at work. All the, she thinks that's all I do. Um, 
but my relationship with my mom is great. My relationship with my grandmother is great, but it hasn't always been like that. Um, it's definitely been challenging when I miss holidays and birthdays and special occasions, weddings, funerals, because unfortunately, you know, I never made certain things a priority, but I would say at this point in my life, I'm doing a lot better at, you know, letting people in and also showing people that they mean something to me. So, yeah, that idea really resonates for me a lot because it almost speaks to the idea that proximity isn't necessary for love, right? Like you guys can still have an amazing relationship across states. And the one thing that I'd like to bring up is this might almost loop back to the love languages, which is something we talked about offhand uh, before the interview. Personally, for me, a big changing point in my mom and I's relationship was finding out that one of her love languages was quality time. So for me, I my love language is words of affirmation. So like when I would give her words of affirmation or she would give me words of affirmation, that was kind of like how we connected. But learning that hers was acts of service and quality time really made me reshift the way that I was like showing that love or kind of building that relationship. So that's something that I'd like to introduce of maybe that you guys are displaying love in different ways potentially of like you guys clearly both care about each other, have a great relationship, but maybe she values quality time more than you do or, you know, I'm not speculating on the experience, but just the, I can't recommend the love languages more, both for romantic relationship, but even like familial or friend relationships. And then the one other thing that you brought up that you kind of glossed through, but I really want to make a note of is you mentioned, you know, she was telling you to figure your stuff out, as you said, but I'm happy, right? But those three words, I think, mean so much because that's almost like the only thing to figure out, right? Like no matter what the title is, what the money is, like if you're happy, that's all that matters at the end of the day. And I think that introduces just a whole kind of idea around like what does success mean? We definitely preach on the show a lot that success should be equivalent to happiness, not necessarily rank or money or like status, power, et cetera. But really that happiness is like the currency of success is something that we feel really passionately about. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, whether it's in your own experience or even just in the restaurant scene as a whole, because it seems like people do food, the restaurant scene for that passion, for that happiness. I do think that most of the times when people say that or you hear somebody say, oh, but I'm happy, like it doesn't matter how much money I make, but it sounds naive because if you're broke and you can't pay your bills, there's no way you're going to be happy, right? But yeah, I think that um, being happy with what you do is really literally everything. Like, because you can wake up in the morning, you can feel good about yourself, you can wake up and say, okay, this is my plan. You know what you're doing, you know what you have to get done, you know what you're investing your time into, and you don't have to walk into a room and feel ashamed of what you're doing or feel uncomfortable or not be able to have a passionate conversation about something. You know what I mean? Like, And I think that's why I think that being happy is everything because it shows in the way that you look, the way that you talk, the way that you speak about yourself, your confidence, uh, the way that you treat other people. Um, so I think it's important whether, you know, it's important to find your happiness and it doesn't matter who's disappointed in you. Going back to integrity, as long as you're doing things with integrity and you're being true to yourself, you know that you can walk into a room and not feel ashamed about anything or that somebody's going to say something about you and you're going to have this crazy debate. I feel like that is literally everything. Like, what else can you possibly ask for? besides like a clean slate and just being able to be okay anywhere you go, you know? Yeah. That's that's pretty much it for me. I mean. Yeah, 1000%. I'm hearing a big ethos of like expression, right? And like true expression, not kind of stifled because of the room you're in or resistant yep. because of what other people might think. And this really reminds me of a book that I'm reading called How to Do the Work by Nicole LaPera, she's a psychotherapist from Philly that just embraced a more holistic lens around therapy and mental health. And one of the things that she said is that every human, their three fundamental needs is to be heard, to be loved, and to express their authentic selves of just whatever form that is. 
So I think what your example is kind of speaking to is that anytime you're not happy, you're not able to express that full self. You're always like kind of resisting or trying to change, but really being happy allows that full expression that I really just want to drive home. Sure. On that note, uh, some people could be smiling on the outside, but that could be very depressed or sad, right? So you could definitely fake a smile. The most and the easiest way to test out to see if they're truly happy about what they're doing, just ask them about what they do. You can't fake that spark. Like whenever we ask you about all these questions about being a chef, about leadership, about the ingredients, about the dishes you're working on, you've had these sparks on. And of course, you're being emotional and you were crying in terms of your great mentor, Chad. Um, all that talks about because the fact that you're feeling emotional means you truly feel called to and it means greatly to you. And you can't fake those. And obviously, I do want to note that because we want to acknowledge privileges are a thing. There's are two types of people in the world, right? A lot of people, they work to live, right? They don't really have the luxuries or the privilege to think about happiness. Think about the currency of happiness. Think about, oh, am I doing things that are making me fulfilling? Am I doing things that make me happy? Some people, they just have to work and ensure they have to pay the bills to ensure there's food, ensure they don't get evicted. And there's a lot of you know systematic racism, systematic oppression. There's a lot of structural reasons why that is, and it's unfortunate. And then there's people like us, at least for me personally, is that I live to work. I love what I do through a lot of, I'm, I'm currently on my second career pivot and I'm only 28. I've gone through a previous pivot from the consulting realm as a management consultant from private sector into the nonprofit sector. And I was able to do that is because I had the certain level of privilege that was granted to me through my parents' sacrifice, just like your story, right? So I do wanna make that acknowledgement because not everyone can or could pursue what they love because of the limitations of the circumstances. And that is 100% valid. Uh, but it is awesome that you subscribe to the same ethos as we do is the balance. Or you talked about umami. Umami is a balance of flavors. And you encompasses that balance through your dishes, but also your life's philosophy. And so on that note, I want to ask you about umami of life. Is how do you personally see the balance between like happiness that you've been pursuing for the past 13 years or ever since you came to Philly, you went to art Institute since you're 18, you left Bronx and you've been on this path. And now you as the head chef, as a chef de cuisine, as one of the most prestigious restaurants in Philadelphia. And also I don't want people to be mistaken when, uh, when you say, Oh, you care about flavors first and foremost, your dishes are still aesthetic as fuck. Like they look <laughs> gorgeous you know and for anyone we'll obviously link our information look up any dishes they look otherworldly right i can never replicate that if you give me 100 years i, I just can't because i'm not I'm, you know um, but like, how do you see the umami of life like how do you see the different things you have to balance or you're currently trying to balance on you touched on your work ethics you touched about your family stuff you talked about your profession but what else are you currently balancing because i know you're very big on mental health I know you read a lot of books. I know you embody that student's mindset. But I just love to ask you about your personal umami flavors of life. Honestly, it's just like you do your best um, and you give yourself, you know, you give, try your best to give 100% of yourself in everything that you do. And I, that's really all you can do. Like, you know, one of my biggest struggles throughout my entire life has been my mental health. Um, finally, like admitting that I had a problem and finally having somebody who cared enough to actually listen and not just be like, oh, toughen up or um, somebody who, who literally tells you, here's a phone number. I made an appointment for you. You're going. And, you know, they say, don't worry about when you have to come into work. Just go get it done. You know, figure your shit out. And they even offer to pay for it. You know, but you got to set those boundaries because you can't take advantage of the people who care for you. So and obviously I'm talking about Chad, but like I was able to get my mental health right. And I feel like that kind of just fixed everything. And I have been on that journey for so long since I started going to a therapist in 2015. And then I stopped because I was so in my head that I was like, oh, this therapist doesn't give a shit about me. I'm going to stop going. Um, so I did that. But then things got worse. And that's when, the, you know, I'm not good enough all the time. And then the intrusive thoughts uh, started seeping in. And, you know, you decide, OK, I need to take this help. And 
it's not that easy to just be like, oh, I'm going to take this help because when you're in that place mentally, even a therapist, even those hotlines, you know, that they suggest that are all over the place. If you're in a bad mental place and you're over the phone with somebody trying to talk to them about things that are so like hard for you, how do you expect somebody who was just picking up the phone and doing this all day for you to feel like you're having a genuine interaction? And I'm sure that they've helped plenty of people, but I feel like there's different, there's different gravities to that. Right. And I feel like once your mental health is right, everything else just kind of starts to, to balance themselves out because you can't be your best self. If you have something up here, that's telling you I'm not good enough or nobody likes me, or I have no friends because I just have to be everybody's boss all the time. But I feel like a lot of it is like, you know, you take yourself very seriously as a chef. I mean, at least I do. And it's always been like, okay, one thing I used to be so toxic guys. Um, I used to tell my cooks, like, you know, they would come in and work, uh, 12 hour days and be exhausted sometimes 13 hour days and be tired and they would fuck something up and I would be like what's the point of you even coming in here if you're not going to be your best self like you're sacrificing all this time away from your family just to be mediocre and when you're finally able to step away from you know the mental masturbation you know where you think you know it all and you think you're the best then you can be a better version of yourself and you can help other people. So I think that people have definitely gotten different versions of me, but that's been because, you know, maybe at some point I wasn't mentally stable. And then now that I am, I feel like I can open doors for other people or I can give people better guidance and I can do, do the work within myself to be able to help other people. Um, and that's kind of, it's kind of it really. That's how you find balance. It's just you get your mental health right. But not everybody has their Chad. Not everybody has their Hannah, you know, which is, I mean, it's not great, but I feel like that's why it's important to spread the word and just be freaking kind to people, you know, and be, let people be human, let people be in pain and listen to them. One thing that I take pride in is that people talk to me about their personal stuff, you know, and people feel confident enough to know that I will listen or feel confident enough to be like, oh, what should I do? Even if it's something like silly, like dating or just to have somebody listen and actually you feel that uh, genuine compassion from people because you know, you can have somebody listen to you but they can kind of just be fake and just be an ear, right? But you just have to be an open person, I feel like. And when you're open, I feel like you just find balance, feel light, you have a light heart, you live long. Amen. Yeah, so well said. And that represents so many of the things that we talk about and preach on the show a lot. Like, appreciate you thoroughly sharing because that kind of loops in Ben's point from earlier of like the inner is kind of a reflection of the outer, which is the point that you've just eloquently made. And the idea that comes up for me is like affirmation, getting affirmed that things are okay or getting helped through assistance, through mental health resources that allows you to kind of help others going forward. Saying that I always come back to is you can't pour from an empty cup, kind of like the same oxygen mask analogy from an airplane, you have to take care of yourself first, then you can help other people. And one idea that I've been thinking a lot about is that active listening with no agenda um, that I kind of want to just drive home a little bit for the listeners of like, as a problem solver and as a male specifically, we like to fix things a lot. It's kind of like a common, you know, humored male and feminine kind of thing of like guys want to fix the problem. Girls just want to have their problems heard. So that's something that I've been working on intensively, but really listening with no agenda, but just listening for the act of listening, I think is something that's really come up for me. And kind of related to that, it's the healing power of helping others heal, right? So because Chad was able to help you through your problems. Now you're able to help other people through their problems. So I really want to kind of double click on that idea there of like, do you find that listening to other people, helping them become better people, become better chefs, does that impact your healing and your own mental health? I mean, I don't know if this sounds corny, but I like to think of myself as an empath. I feel people's emotions very strongly and I like, I can always put myself in somebody else's shoes. Um, 
And I feel like, yeah, that helps me be a better person. It helps me be a better chef because not that it sets my expectations as to what people can do, but it helps me understand why they're doing what they're doing or why they're distracted one week. You know, we can't always be at a hundred percent. I'm not always at a hundred percent. You know what I mean? So I feel like developing empathy is like very important. Um, so that you can just learn how to work with people and learn how to navigate through different uh, situations. That's pretty much it. For sure. I think the seasonal element is something that you mentioned that almost might speak to food as well, right? Like different people have different seasons. I think, you know, certain months people focus on different things or different events are coming up. And then that almost bridges into seasonality with food of like menus changing from time to time, but really like, I guess, honoring the natural cycles of other people, the worlds that we live in, like the environment. Do you consciously think about that of like different times for different things or different phases for different people? I definitely always think about different phases for different people because I feel like I'm a prime example of that. Um, I'm not always, I sometimes tell my friends, I'm not always the same version of myself for everyone. Like, you know, people get different versions of you and it's just like, if you need to be a leader, then you have a different personality. If you have to be a friend to somebody and just listen, you know, you're able to put down that wall of seriousness and be somebody different. Um, But yeah, you just kind of have to take things day by day because, you know, you don't know what people are going home to. You don't know what's going on, who has cancer, you know, had somebody pass away and they don't tell anybody or who just got broken up with or, you know, you have to be sensitive to everything because you never know what's meaningful to anybody. So, or how your words can hurt them or anything like that. So, yeah, I, I feel like there is, there's definitely, everybody has their seasons, you know? Yeah. I think the type of compassionate leader shines through your stories. And I think your line cooks or chefs are lucky to have you as a leader. I actually mean that. Um, if I ever want to go through my third, and hopefully final career pivots, I will go to Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I think that's a perfect segue because you talked about the seasonality and how different people get different versions of you. And I think that's a that's true for every single person. No one's right. always consistent. No one's always have this persona. And we're not even talking about curator personas. Like we are multifaceted. We have multi dimensions to who we are. And Aiden and myself on this show, we often talk about offline and on the show we talk about the act of balancing between creation and consumption and we were talking more metaphorically about how do we deal with consuming information consuming podcasts consuming knowledge consuming books and we also have to focus on creating podcasts creating content writing you know production and we all have a everyone has the same finite amount of 24 hours a day doesn't matter how great you are how competent you are how high functioning you are how smart you are you get 24 hours, just like anything else. Time is the greatest equalizer, period. So for you, literally speaking and metaphorically speaking, you as a chef is one of the few unique professions that get to deal with the both creation aspect and consuming aspect. Especially for you to deliver that umami on a plate, you almost have to taste all different plates of flavors, all different flavors, ingredients. You have to allow trials. So you need the creations as much as you need the consumptions. And since you talk about umami a lot, I think you talk about balancing a lot. How do you achieve as a chef de cuisine and as a human being balance the act of creating and consumption in your day-to-day work? You just kind of have to be logical um, in terms of like what people want. You know, you need to know your audience first and foremost. You know, I think one of the most important things when you're operating a business not that, you know, I'm not, I don't own the restaurant, but um, you have to know who you're catering to, you know, your demographics is the word I was thinking. You need to know your demographics. Are they people who want to just eat soigne and uni and caviar, or are they people who care about the food and the taste and the service and the experience? Um, so that's number one. And then I'm going to be redundant again, like, It goes back to just, you know, whenever you're creating stuff, you just got to be true to yourself. You have to be well-educated and really, um, you don't know everything, but 
whatever you do know, just do your best at it. And I think with the creative process, you just want to, like I said, know your audience and then know what it is that you want to put out. For example, one thing that we do every single day before service is we taste every single ingredient that is on the line to make sure that the line picks. Not that you shouldn't trust uh, people, but make sure that, you know, no one's using old ingredients or herbs from the day before or, you know, like chives that have been cut that are now more oniony because they've sat. You just got to pay attention to the little things that matter. Um, so I think for in consumption, so you want people to have the best experience. And if you would want to eat it, if you think something's weird, then don't send it out. And, you know, sometimes you got to toughen up, take the whip out and just be like, listen, don't put this out. And then you set your standards. You always got to set your standards when you're being creative and you're, you want people who consume your food to love it as much as you do. You got to really be kind of crazy about it, you know, obsessive, like, I don't like for me, one of the things is like the way I look at things, I'm like judgy as shit when I go to a restaurant. I look at the way things are plated. I'm like, oh, why would you not pay attention to the placement of this herb? And I know that I drive the cooks at my job crazy, but I like the dill with all the little points pointing to a specific direction in the center. So it's uniform, you know, and it kind of draws the eye and the way that people eat. So you have to think about things in so many different ways and you have to think about oh is this glass where this tea is going out not polished would i look at it and put it over a candle and see if there's fingerprints all over it probably so i tell the cooks pay attention if you have to polish this you know polish this if there's dry tea on a spout and it's going to be poor table side am i going to pay attention to it yes i am so fix it you know what i mean and you become so obsessive about it but when you set that standard everybody else follows because they know if I do this wrong, I'm going to get caught because I'm always paying attention. They're going to get caught and somebody's going to notice it or somebody's going to post it on Instagram. And it's happened several times where I'm like, what did I say about this herb? Why am I seeing a picture on social media where it's not properly placed? You know what I'm saying? Cause you can't have your eyes everywhere, but eventually, you know, I try to teach them like, and I think that being so hard on somebody helps them have that level of integrity as well because you know you do something weird you're gonna get caught so um not to sound like so militant or anything like that but just like kindness trickles down standards also do so yeah i just feel like that's kind of how you go from being creative to worrying about the consumer and what they're eating you think about what your standards are what you want people to experience and just said it that way thank you for listening to the part one of our conversation with Sashia Liriano we will be releasing our part two next Monday on June 14th where we discuss more in depth about Sashia's mental health journey her culinary art refinement process and empowering lessons that she wishes to share with all women chefs and leaders out in the world. We hope to discover more with you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.